You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Welcome to the Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline, yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with Stage Left.NYC and Stage Left, the podcast. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Well, this week we're talking about something that often gets overlooked, or should I say, goes unheard. That's right. We're finally sitting down with a sound designer to talk about what is probably one of the newest fields in stagecraft, second only to the use of projection, um, and easily one of the most misunderstood and underappreciated of all the moving parts that go into a show. In just a little bit, we'll be joined by Jessica Paz, the Tony Award-winning sound designer of Town on Broadway, who also worked as associate sound designer on Dear Evan Hansen, Bandstand, Disaster, the musical, and Fela, to name just a few of her Broadway credits, and who has worked extensively off-Broadway and in the regions as well as in film and music. She's an expert in the field, and as she writes in her bio, pizza is her favorite food group. I'm so excited to chat with Jessica and to nerd out about the intricacies of sound design and, well, pizza. Uh, but first, after a year without live in-person performance, we recently did something kind of cool. Yes, we did. We've done a couple of cool things, yeah, actually. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. we've, we've been fortunate enough to be in the audience for two of the New York Pops Up, one at the St. James with Savion Glover and Nathan Lane, who read a monologue by Paul Rudnick. Uh, yeah, that was really, really cool. Um, I mean, there's nobody like Nathan Lane and there's nobody like Savion Glover. I mean, I had never actually seen him perform live. Uh, so that was such a treat for me. I, it brought me back 25 years to noise funk yeah. and a show, which I have said before on this show, I saw many, many, many times. Yeah. It was thrilling. He needs to come back and do a show as soon as possible. As in bringing the noise, bringing the fire. He's a national treasure. Yeah, he is. And I just have to say, particularly with being in the St. James, just that first moment back in a Broadway theater, yeah. I, I was overwhelmed with many, many emotions. But just the simple thing of being able to say hello to an usher or <laughs> greet the person that zapped your ticket, because of course the tickets were on our phones, which is probably a wave of the future. All of that felt really wonderful. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a sort of, you know, um, an event quality, right. To going to the theater, right. There's, there's a ritual, there's habits of, you know, how you get in and out of a space. All of those are parts that, you know, you don't necessarily think of when you think of going to the theater as the first things that come to mind, but they're all a part of it. You know, I mean, uh, getting the playbill, finding your seat, you know, uh, 
talking to your seatmate, whatever it is, right? Those are all parts of the experience that um, it was really special to to be with others uh, in in a one defined space for a live performance. Um, and then, of course, the second uh, New York pops up uh, was at the Broadway Theater with Amber Amon, who, um, if you don't know who she is, uh, look her up um, because she is going to be huge. She's already huge, but uh, I, I think she's got a really, really big and bright future ahead of her. She was in Shuffle Along on Broadway in 2016. And I remember clocking her then and thinking, wow, she's there's something interesting about her, right? And she held court at the Broadway theater for an hour uh, performance that was just riveting and heartfelt and, um, you know, brave and honest and entertaining and funny and all the things that you want in a performance, uh, just pitch perfect. And I'm so glad that the powers that be gave her an opportunity to be, you know, not just the first woman, but the first black woman to um, to perform on in, in sort of the new Broadway, if we can, if we can call it that. Well, I think we can call it that. And I will yeah. say what I thought, again, I remember her from Shuffle Along because she yeah. definitely stood out. Like, yes. not, only is she, not only is she beautiful and tall and all of that, but she stood out as a performer. Yeah. What I loved about the, the, the set that she did or the, the gig, <laughs> she addressed the moment in time beautifully. Yeah. She, she, like, she brought us through the last year mm-hmm. and brought us into where we are now. And, and I, it was so smartly done and her music choices were so terrific and it just reminded me also as much as i love being in a broadway theater and as great as that was it also made me long for joe's pub for Mm -hmm. green room 42 for all those smaller venues where you can do a show like that right where you can have a club act or you know whatever 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 we want to call that now it it just it i just miss performance (laughs) just miss it all well it's coming back it's coming back the other really cool thing that we did um is we went to see Blindness, which is currently playing at the Daryl Roth Theater uh, off Union Square, um, off Broadway. And, um, you know, that was a really, really cool experience. Now, I guess I should say at the outset, you know, that there are no live performers. Uh, It's not a play so much as, I mean, they describe it, quote, as a socially distanced light and sound experience. And actually, it's kind of a perfect tie-in for the theme of of this week's episode, uh, because it really is a sound experience. it's pretty, pretty neat. Um, you know, there were about what, 50 of us, Jamie, uh, at each something like that. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was pretty, we were, we, it, it definitely felt safe. It definitely felt comfortable. It was not overcrowded. No, um, no not at all. And you are in your own little world, right? Cause you're right. wearing headphones and you're every experience is individual. Yeah. Even yeah. though we're, even though we're all listening to the same, we're all having the same experience. It's, it was, it was, I loved it. I thought it was really unique. Great yeah. re-entry into the theater. Totally, totally. You know, it felt like the kind of sort of experiential thing. You'd almost see it like a museum, right? Yeah. Like it had a sort of art installation-like quality to it. It started at the Donmar Warehouse in the UK and crossed the crossed the pond to now be one of the first shows, if not the first show, that's playing um off Broadway. And, you know, like I mentioned, there are no live performers. Um, you know, it's sort of more of like an oral experience. Um, but it's narrated by Juliet Stevenson. And um, I was unfamiliar with the source material, actually. I know, Jamie, you had read the book, right? I had read the book and I didn't put the two together because yeah. I, I didn't, I did, I did no research on this. You just said, we're going to this thing. Yeah. And I went. And the minute it started, I, 
I remembered, oh, this is Blindness, the book by Sarah Mongo. Oh, oh, got it. And so I yeah. knew then, uh, which I'm not sure you knew, the journey we no. were going to go on. And my yeah. first thought was, how are they going to get this into 80 minutes or whatever it is? Like, how are they going to do it? And what what is it going to be like? Because it's a pretty intense story yeah. and they did and they then we went on that journey and it was brilliant and it was the perfect time right like there's a thing that happens and there's a reveal so to speak at the end which i won't say but when that happens it is literally such a breath of fresh air and such a like absolute just it's just so simple and perfect it's such a great theatrical moment go see yeah. it you're gonna love it yeah 100 percent. there's nothing like you know being back in at the theater and this is running through September 5th and tickets are $45. It's uh, it's actually 70 minutes um, and um, a really cool experience. So check it out if you're even mildly interested and are looking for a way to not only support the arts in New York, but to get out of your house and, and do something in a safe, socially distanced manner. Um, amazing. Well, on that note, um, should we get to our interview? I think we should. I think it's time to talk sound and pizza. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're very excited to talk to you. To kick us off, my first question is, how did you become a sound designer? Oh, gosh, by accident. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was working in a scuba diving store and uh, a friend of mine was, you know, performing in Saturday night performances of uh, the Rocky Horror Show at a community theater. And I would go and hang out. And then eventually I started like operating the fog machine at the end of the show. And this is like, I was like 20 or something. And, uh, and then they asked me to stage manage something. Um, and I loved that. And then there was a, a show that, you know, didn't, that I loved that didn't quite sound so great. It was a bat boy, the musical. And, uh, you know, I got, I got behind the sound desk and I started moving knobs and mixing and, the rest is sort of history. So no, clearly no formal training, no like childhood dream of listening to Foley artists and sound mixing and all of that. It just, you literally fell into it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even, <laughs> I, I was one of those, you know, naive audience members. I'd go and see shows in high school and it didn't even occur to me that there were people who worked backstage, right? Or that there was, yeah, it didn't. Well, I, that's actually one of the reasons that Rob and I decided to do this show was as avid uh, theater goers and Rob is a critic and so on and so forth. We felt that there was so much about theater that we didn't even understand how it operated, even though we see three shows a week and, you know, whatever, we, you know, we're, we're fairly plugged in. And so we wanted to be able to talk to people like yourself to give us sort of a little window into like, how do those knobs actually work that you were fiddling around with? Like, what is that actually, what is that process? Uh, uh, that's a very, Wait, that's a broad that, question. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and that's, uh, and, and, and that maybe is not the right place to start. Cause that's a huge, that's a huge question. Let me, let me ask it this way. What excites you about sound design? What excites you about what you do? Oh gosh, all of it. Uh, I love the technology. I love, you know, working with a team of collaborators on a show. I love 
editing. You know, I've worked on a podcast and audio drama uh, called Romeo and Juliet for the public theater, which is a bilingual production, which was a lot of fun. I love mixing music. I love music, which it's, you know, it's, it's actually kind of odd. I love music so much, but in my daily life, I don't listen to a lot of music. Like I'm, I'm not like constantly on Spotify or, you know, buying albums. I, I guess I feel like I get so much music in my work that when I'm done with work, that's, you know, I want to go watch a TV show, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's a lot of mystery around what it is that a sound designer does, you know, obviously as a newer discipline among all the different crafts. And it strikes me that that it seems like a, a real combination of of different roles all under one giant hat. So I'm wondering if you could sort of just explain the different aspects of what it is that a sound designer does just from a, you know, sort of a generic baseline uh, level. Sure. Yeah. For, for something like a play, uh, you know, you would, you would be designing the sound system that goes into the theater. That's also for a musical, right? You, all you get with a theater is four walls and, and a place to plug in your power. Um, so we, we specify all of that equipment then, you know, for a play, it might you might be using microphones. It might be area mics uh, to help amplify the actors in, in a small off-Broadway house. It's probably unlikely, but you could. Then there would be ambiances. Uh, sometimes uh, sound designers are also composers, so they would write all the music for the show. It could be finding the right music, music written by someone else uh, that you find and edit down uh, for specific moments in the play, sound effects, ambiances, etc. And then for a musical, you know, it's, it's, you're not necessarily finding music, you're amplifying the writing and orchestrations of the, of the, of the writer. It's, it's broad. It begins with a system design, you know, conversations with the director about the artistic intent of the show and the design. And, uh, you know, for some shows it could be, you know, two pieces of music for other shows. It could be 150 sound cues that are, you know, multiple files deep and various orchestrations, etc., and so on. And, you know, for a musical, it could be it could be like a, a book scene, musical number, book scene, musical number type show, or it could be a completely sung through like folk opera, like Hadestown, for instance. Cause right now we're living it. Living it, living it up. Brother, right here we're living it. Listen here, I'll tell you how we're living it up on top. So it sounds like it's a real mix of sort of creative and technical capacities, right? That's sort of yeah. the intersection of, of of both of those approaches. And you just mentioned, you know, working with the director. So I'm curious, you know, since a lot of sound, from what I gather, you know, um, is site specific, or a lot of sound design is site specific. At what point in the process does a sound designer sort of get involved? Because I imagine there's a lot that can't be done until you're physically in the space. I, I actually feel like it's it's never too soon mm. for the sound designer to get involved because there would be, you know, ways to incorporate scenery into the sound design. Um, you know, we need to, for instance, Hadestown has speakers hidden among the scenery that you don't see because 
you know, I collaborated with a scenic designer to find places to put them and hide them, but that they would still function, right? So getting involved early is is never is never a bad thing. And you get to also then be part of design conversations that maybe don't affect the sound design, but certainly keep you informed of intent, right? And the artistic intention of the show and the direction in which everyone wants it to go, as opposed to coming in later and then, and, and having had no input into that creative process, right? Coming in later, and then you just have to design something that works for the the thing that you're presented with, right? As opposed to, if you're involved early in those conversations, you get to have influence in them. I'm curious, you mentioned hiding speakers in the set of Town. Are those speakers for the audience members' benefit or for the actors on stage or the musicians or everyone? They're mostly for the actors. There are two speakers overhead that are specifically for a sound effect. Um, so I would say that's for the audience. But <laughs> all of the speakers are pretty much on, on the stage uh, are for the actors, yeah. And that's, you know, an interesting piece because obviously you've got the band on stage with the performers. So I'm wondering, you know, in the, in the, in the course of designing, you know, the, the, the sound plan for the show, you know, how that presented challenges to you as a, as a sound designer. There were a lot of conversations about how we were going to enclose the drummer, you know, because having, having a drummer on stage with the performers, with all those open microphones was going to make keeping the vocals clean, difficult. Right. So I think it, it took us, it took us about a year so between Canada and London, it took us about a year to figure out scenically wow. how that was going to work, right? Because we wanted the drummer to be seen and to be center stage. And uh, Rachel Houck came up with that brilliant drum enclosure uh, that really worked for everybody. So it was it was fantastic. Stepping outside of a traditional theater, you've worked uh, you worked for the public. You've worked at the Delacorte. What are the challenges when you're working in an outside venue? <laughs> raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone says that about the Delacorte. The famous yeah. raccoons. Yes. Yeah, the raccoons. Um, they 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 steal your food from your table from your tech table. It's happened. Um, oh, here I was thinking they were nibbling on cords and and causing electrical problems, but it's literally stealing food. They steal food. They fall asleep inside our equipment racks because they're warm. Um, so we had to we had to put a cage around our equipment racks uh, at one point because we we found three baby raccoons sleeping on top of our amps. It's very cute. They're 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 actually they're they're not really pests. You know, we have them. They they do on occasion make appearances on stage. Uh, so that's always fun. Uh, they're they're fun to have around, but they they definitely uh, will steal your food. They're very cute. I did get to hold a baby one once because we found five babies in a garbage can. I guess the mother put them there to keep them safe. And she went off to go find food. We kept hearing this rustling sound. So we called uh Central Park Conservancy. And uh, they came because we're not allowed to touch the animals at all. And they dump out the trash can and uh -huh. out comes five little baby raccoons. And I was like, oh, my God, can I hold one? And they let me. So I got to hold a raccoon. That's as close as I'll never want to hold an adult one. That's for sure. <laughs> the baby. It was very cute. What are the, what are the other challenges? Uh, raccoons <laughs> is, is me just being joking around. Uh, rain, weather. You know, humidity, uh, keeping keeping the equipment safe from the weather is a uh, always a challenge. And and being able to to survive, you know, on the hot days, it's about 
you know, conserving energy because it's, mm. it's so hot. I think we get, because we're in this big bowl shape, all the heat gets stuck <laughs> inside. And I think, I think we've clocked it at like 110 degrees <gasps> at the back of the audience in oh, during wow. the afternoons and like in like a hot August afternoon. So just, you know, keeping yourself hydrated and cool, you know, and out of the sun is yeah. really important. Does yeah. the heat affect the, the instruments like speakers and microphones and the physical infrastructure? No, it's just the, you know, the humans who have to interact with it. I mean, sometimes it might, you know, we, we were having, um, one year it was really hot and the air conditioned booth, uh, the air conditioner wasn't running as well. And so our computers started like acting a little funny. Mm. Yeah. But we got the air conditioner fixed and then it was fine. <laughs> so the equipment can sometimes overheat, but there's usually um, some built-in protections within the equipment itself. So it'll shut down before it just melts, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting because, you know, obviously I figured the elements, the heat, the rain, the wild animals would would be a part of it. But I thought for sure your answer was going to be something about, you know, being able to direct the sound so the audience members can hear better or something to do with blocking out the city sounds. And that's not at all what you answered, which is really fascinating to me. You'd be surprised, you know, d during the afternoon, we're sort of, we're there in, in a bit more of a support capacity because there's a rehearsal going on and everyone needs to hear. But uh, at night, it gets very quiet. It gets very quiet. There's much far fewer people in the park. Right. The the busker playing saxophone goes home. Uh, the the traffic is much lighter. So there there's and and frankly, you're in the middle of the park, so you're not really hearing traffic. You're you're hearing like a like a buzz, you mm -hmm. know, like a constant whir uh, that you you don't really ping as as traffic. But at night, it gets surprisingly calm and quiet the the other challenge is the helicopters that mm. fly over <laughs> the famous helicopters yeah, yeah yeah well i'm wondering you know as i alluded to you know this is it's one of the newer recognized you know crafts in the theater sound design and you know it was only first recognized by the tony awards in 2008 yes. only to have the category eliminated uh in 2015 and 2016 and then restored in 2017 I'm wondering mm -hmm. what that experience and what that recognition, you know, sort of means to you as a member of of the sound design community and to the community, you know, writ large. Well, I mean, I think it's really important to really important to honor all of the disciplines, right? We we have awards for best director, best musical, best orchestrations, best all all the way down the line, right? But there was no award for sound and I you know, I always wondered before there was an award, you know, why, why aren't we awarding this category? The film industry does. Mm -hmm. We, we clearly, uh, and then there was, I think some, some debate as to whether or not sound design was a technical field or an artistic field. And I believe the answer is both. Right. So I think it's important for the Tonys to acknowledge it. I think it's important for people to understand that there are people behind the scenes making that happen. And, and learning how to appreciate the art form and, and the work that goes into it. Well, speaking of learning to appreciate it, you know, I think to your point about some people thinking that it's purely technical, you know, I guess one argument that might have been made, you know, for the reason why the category was taken away after being, you know, created was that perhaps voters aren't equipped to assess 
sound design. So I'm wondering what you would say to not just voters, but to audience members, you know, who um, go to the theater often to educate them on how they can evaluate sound design from the perspective of, of an audience member. What what should we be listening for? I think, you know, vocal clarity is is top of the list, right? You have to be able to my goal is to make sure that every audience member is able to hear and understand the show, right? That's that's baseline goal. <laughs> can can we hear the words and understand them? Uh, because surprisingly, you know, if if I EQ someone's microphone a certain way, it certain it certainly affects their intelligibility, right? And our goal is to make them as intelligible as possible. Um, and then creativity, you know, does does hearing something a certain way or the reverb on on that vocalist for that solo make you feel something? Weather ain't the way it was before. Ain't no spring or fall at all anymore. It's either blazing hot or freezing cold. Anyway, the wind blows And there ain't a thing that you, you can, can do When the weather takes a turn on you Set for hurry up and hit the road Anyway, the wind blows Wind comes up, ooh. Do you hear that sound? Wind comes up, move the town ain't nobody gonna stick around when the dark clouds roll anyway the wind blows you met the fates remember them anybody got a match you know it's difficult to to quantify because it's it's sort of an element that you when it's there you don't notice it because it just works right but if it's not there it, it sort of something something feels funny something feels off right mm. if it's right this is i think part of why it's so difficult because when it's right you you almost don't notice it and when it's when it's not good or, or there's you know or it's off or so, someone's unintelligible etc then you're like oh this this sounds this sounds bad what's what's going on right i think that's part of it yeah. Well, it's funny. Jamie and I had the experience of going to the first preview of Oklahoma, the Daniel Fish version at the Circle in the Square Theater on Broadway um, after it had been at St. Anne's uh, um, in Brooklyn. And that was an experience where for the first time ever in my life, at least, I noticed that they needed a lot more work had to be done on on the sound front because, you know, it was a new space. It was the first performance and it has that runway and there was the band on stage and there were parts of the show that just were not intelligible to your point because it just, they hadn't worked it out yet. And I, I clocked that as like, Oh wow. Yeah. There's a lot that happens, you know, to make it seem like nothing's happening. How much of your work, you know, you mentioned earlier, we were talking about working with the creative team at the sort of the beginning of the process. How much of your work is actually done in the theater? And is there, I mean, I assume most of it, but is there work that you do outside? Are there, are there, uh, are there things that you do planning wise or, or, or that, that aren't, that doesn't happen actually in the theater? Oh gosh. Yeah. So there's, um, after, after we do a site visit, then there'll be a whole round of um, 
what I call predictions, which happens in a manufacturer's software. So I'll think, oh, okay, I think that these speakers might be good for the show in this space. And I'll then, you know, go into my prediction software and do a study of how those particular speakers will perform in the space, like against a, a, a drawing. I can import a drawing of the theater into into the software. So I'll look at that for a while and, and then, you know, sort of land on what I think the sound system needs to be. I'll then make um, a spreadsheet, which we call the workbook, which has everything from, you know, uh, once I've chosen what console I want to use, then it'll be, you know, we specify the outputs from the console, what processors we're going to use for the speakers, inputs to the consoles, microphones for the actors, microphones for the band, what microphone hardware we're going to use for those microphones, um, what hardware we're going to use for the speakers. Um, then there'll be like another sheet that is um, all of our network infrastructure and information about that. And there'll be another sheet that's all about the intercom and the closed circuit television that the creative team and the show crew will use to communicate with each other and be able to see all the various angles of the stage and the automation. Uh, and that's custom for, you know, every show. So it starts there. Um, then th then there'll be a sort of a schematic drawing phase, which is, you know, a, a line drawing of all the connections in the show, right? And then there'll be a cable phase where an associate or an assistant will um, basically create a database of every cable in the sound system and, and its connections, which will then print out onto labels and then there'll be like a three or four week shop prep where a team of people will go in and they'll they'll build all of the racks, put all the equipment in it, label everything, label all the cables, and then they'll lay all of that out. They'll turn it all on. They'll test it. And then they'll take it all apart. And then they'll send it to the theater and they'll put it back together again. Wow. So that that process all takes before we even get to the theater. We're talking, you know, a number of months of of planning or, you know, in the rehearsal room, the sound designer might go in uh, to try out sound effects in the rehearsal room and discuss that with the director, try out music uh, during rehearsals uh, and et cetera and so on. Right. So once the show is up and you've got this system in place and you've tested it and you know that it works and it's, you know, it's achieving the artistic and technical goals that you set out, how much of an ongoing relationship do you have with the show? That is to say, when when new casts come in or, you know, if, if the show goes out on tour or, you know, uh, changes theaters or something like that, uh, are you called back in to, you know, be involved in that process? For a, a new production of the show? Yes, I will. I will mm -hmm. go out and, uh, you know, launch the tour. Um, I will go, if there was a London production, I'd go to London. On the day-to-day, -day, I'm, I'm not in the theater maintaining the show. I'll usually right. pop in you know, once or twice a month. I mean, it's a pretty cool experience to be able to just walk into a Broadway theater and the, you know, the ushers just let you in the front door and you can just stand in the back and like watch your show for 10 minutes and then go home. <laughs> um, so I certainly, I certainly love doing that. Like there's kind of, kind of nothing better. Yeah. And I, I may go in, you know, if, if there's like a new, if there's a new cast member um, and there's a put in rehearsal and I'm available, I may go in for that. And I have a remote control, so I, I can I can actually change their settings, and I don't have to be near the console. I use my iPad to do oh, it. Wow. So that's pretty cool. Which is kind of fun to just be sitting in the audience and you know be able to <laughs> make changes uh, on the fly. So yeah, I, I might I might do that from time to time. 
I, I, I've shared this before on the show, but I had the experience of standing at the back of the Lanfontaine Theater one night at a performance of Tina last season, and I was at the soundboard, and I, I had never watched you know, a, a technician on a soundboard before during a Broadway show. And I ended up watching that more so than the show. I'd already seen the show. So, um, and I was just dazzled by the, the hands on maneuvering of all those knobs and, you know, turning the mics on and off every time someone said a line. I mean, it had never even occurred yeah. to me that that amount mm-hmm. of, you know, sort of operation was happening as the show was going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's, you know, there's, there's cues, of course, in the desk that turn other things on other layers on and off. Mm. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating to, yeah. to watch someone mix a show. I think it's, I, yeah. I love it. <laughs> okay. So now my brain goes to this place, um, which is when you're an audience member in a show, you don't normally hear sound gaffes, right? There's the occasional pop or that kind of thing. Do you have a story or an experience of like a sound design disaster or a sound, something like really gone wrong in a show? There was, there was um, one instance where we actually had to stop a preview of a show because there was a networking error within our console. Mm. And, and because of it, some data got corrupted that made the console believe that something was like, you know, 60 decibels louder than what it really was. And so this, I mean, howling feedback, just, I don't know, it just came out of the sound system so loud that our speakers went into their protection mode, right? So that they wouldn't, they wouldn't blow up essentially. (laughs) Well, they wouldn't have blown up, but they would have, you know, would have damaged the, the speaker cones inside. And, uh, it was pretty terrifying because it was very loud and it was very sudden. <laughs> um, all right. Well, as sort of a sister, I guess, to this question, in your time uh, doing what you do, can you tell me what you think the sort of greatest innovation has been or the thing that's been the, the most help to you doing your work? I want to say the people, the people that I work with, you know, I think that we all, we all like on the, on the sound team, right. They, they have amazing ideas and I think learning learning from each other, you know, when you're like, oh, well, you know what? Actually, I use that mic on a kick drum to do this thing. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I should try that, you know. So I don't know that it's like one piece of technology or or anything. I think it's it's the team, right? Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I thought you'd say your iPad, but uh, <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> your pretty, magical pretty iPad. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm hearing so much. I mean, your answer about innovation was about your collaborators and learning from each other and, you know, sort of brings us full circle to the first question we asked, which was, how did you get into this? And I'm wondering, you know, are there, you know, college programs in sound design? Are there sort of associations where, you know, professionally where, you know, folks have an opportunity to exchange? Like, what is the professional development world like in this space? There are undergrad and graduate degrees. There are mm-hmm. many more now than there had been in years past. Yeah. Uh, there's also the uh, AES is an organization uh, for audio engineers. There's USITT, which does a lot of work with students um, in, in all disciplines, lighting, sound, stage management, etc. There is uh, TSDCA, which is the Theatrical Sound Designers and Composers Association, which I am co-chair of the board. Uh, four, which is about, we have about f- just over 400 members now and uh, sound designers and composers across the whole country. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have members in every region. 
that's also a great resource. We have, uh, if you're a member, you get access to a, our Facebook group where you can, you know, interact with people. We have, and we have a Slack uh, channels that you can have conversations with other designers using, etc. We have committees doing work in education, membership, um, you know, innovation. We do uh, every year. We have an annual meeting. We bring in manufacturers to show us new, new mm. technology. We, you know, have artistic panels as well. We've done various webinars on all all sorts of topics on mm. and we've done you know webinars on podcasting, dialogue editing, um you know brought in different manufacturers to teach us new software, etc and so forth. So wow. those yeah, are so a few of the organizations that you can be involved in if this work interests you, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's all ongoing. Uh well, I'm wondering as part of, you know, as part of that like a sort of ongoing education I mean, obviously, the theater industry as a whole right now is currently confronting a long overdue reckoning with racial injustice and a lot mm -hmm. of inequities um, across the board. Um, so I'm wondering from the sound design side of things, you know, what changes you personally would like to see, you know, both now and when the theater returns on on the front of racial injustice, but, you know, across the board. I'd like to see more women and more people of color in mm -hmm. sound for sure, you yeah. know, more equity. And I would like to see... 10 out of 12s not be part of the schedule anymore. I think that the long hours um, is not only unsafe, but is a barrier to entry for people who maybe have families mm. uh, or want to continue attending school while they work, et cetera, and so on. There's uh, there's a lot of work being done in that area as well. You know, the the being in the theater for three or four weeks straight from eight in the morning to midnight every day, six days a week is, is unhealthy in, in my opinion. You've been very, very generous with your time. Your bio states that you are a lover of pizza. It is your favorite food group. So what's your favorite <laughs> slice in New York city? Okay. My favorite grandma slice is Pazzeria's uh, on 46th street, right across the street from Hamilton. It's a little tiny, pizzeria. Yep, I know it. Yep. Um, that is, yeah, that's my favorite grandma slice. Or is it, do they call it the grandpa? I, there's something about it. The sauce, th that thick sauce that's really garlicky and the super good. Um, my favorite standard slice is um, Bleecker Street Pizza on the corner of 7th Avenue and Christopher Street. I'm pretty sure it's because they use two or three kinds of cheese on top. It's mozzarella and some and some and I think it might be some parmesan and um, so that's my favorite standard slice. I'm not really big on the toppings. I'm I'm a, either a pepperoni or a mushroom girl, depending on the mood. But mostly it's plain. If it's a dollar slice, okay, it's it's the uh, it's the dollar slice place right next door to Second Stage, which is oh, on Forty yeah. Third Street and Eighth <laughs> Avenue. I think that's the best dollar slice. But I tend not to go for the dollar slices. I have to say, I, I feel somewhat like honored that I've I've tried all of these pizzas before from all of these various pizzerias that you're shouting out. So um, amazing. Well, um, our last question is a question we ask uh, all of our guests, and um, you might have already answered it at the top, but maybe not. And that is, uh, what is the show or experience that made you want to work in the theater? Oh gosh. Um, oh boy. That's. <laughs> I I just I I think I just finally found something that piqued my interest in a way that I like didn't get bored with. Every every job that I had prior to sound was something that like 
after about a year, it was like, oh, I got this. Like, eh, you know, <laughs> bookkeeping and and being an executive assistant or administrative assistant and um, or even being the assistant manager of a scuba diving store. It was like once I felt like I had, knew how to do it, I got bored with it. And that never happens with sound, right? Mm. Because there's always some new piece of technology. There's some new technique. There's some other book I can read about the way that the front of house engineer for Metallica did the thing or, you know, the, the engineer who produced Pink's record and what they did. And there's always something. Um, mm. I, I even have been taking some courses at Berkeley School of Music for for mixing just because, not because I don't know how to mix, I do, but to keep myself creative, right? To to have a new thing to make every week, which is, mm. yeah. So it, it just, it keeps, it, it keeps my attention. Even 20 years later, it's still keeping my attention. I can hear it. I can feel it. Can you see it? Can you hear it? Can you feel it? Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. If you haven't yet, check out our friends over at Social Goods, an online store that offers a curated slate of statement-making merchandise that gives back to nonprofits tackling today's most pressing issues. We love their goods, and we love doing good. And the best part is that listeners of The Fabulous Invalid can go to social-goods.com and use the code FAD15 at checkout to receive 15% off your first purchase. That's Social Goods, where every transaction comes with real action. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our archive of episodes and be sure to tune in next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.